1: on News Radio 680
2: WPTF.
0: And I'm Doug Lewis, certified financial planner,
2: and I'm Deborah Lewis, certified financial planner, and we're here to answer your questions for the next hour. Well, Doug,
1: people certainly need to have a better eye as to how they find a financial planner, right? Or what what this are is, the guidelines? You're right, Lynn.
0: This is the type of thing we've been warning people about for years. You don't just get a financial planner because it's someone you've heard about while playing golf with your buddy on the golf course or it's a good friend of so-and-so that you met at a cocktail party, that's not the way that you select a financial planner. There is a significant danger in getting bad financial advice.
1: Well, what are some guidelines that you could suggest to some of our listeners regarding finding a financial planner?
0: Well, there are a number of ways. You should definitely find out how the planner is compensated and where the money is going to come from to pay the planner's fees. Then... The next thing is you should ask for regular reports on the performance of investments. These are the status reports. Quite frankly, Lynn, if a planner doesn't provide ongoing status reports, then I don't think you're getting planning.
1: Is it because they're they're using a salesperson or
2: what?
0: Well, typically consider it, Lindy. You go to a place and a number of things can happen. Let's assume they really produce a financial plan for you. That's a document. That's a snapshot of where you're at right now. But then what about what happens afterwards? There are planners that go ahead and just take a snapshot of where you're at today. And the purpose of that snapshot is to basically sell you some investments. That's something to watch out for. That's a sales tool. But the important thing is not so much what you do when you start with a planner, but it's how things progress, these ongoing reports. If you're getting ongoing planning.
1: It is important to quiz your planner and find out information about the planner and And then also to have some proof of uh, how they're working for you, correct?
0: Right. So what you want to do is you want to see a sample set of ongoing performance reports. And you also want to look at the man's or the woman's background. And that's through the ADV. Now, the ADV is a crucial issue, Lynn. The ADV is the document that discloses everything about that individual. Exactly. The ADV is the form that you definitely should ask for when selecting a financial planner. If a person says to you they don't have one or they don't have to file one, then you need to understand that they are not offering financial planning advice as their main profession and you should not deal with them as a financial planner because the ADV is required by the Securities and Exchange Commission. Now, it gives a total disclosure of the person's history and past. So that's very crucial. If a person doesn't have one, then you're not dealing with a financial planner.
1: So it tells you about their background, their education, their fees, and their
2: experience?
0: Right. doesn't tell you if he's good or bad. It just gives you their fee schedule, their biographical, and how they do their work.
2: Call me, Deborah Lewis, Certified Financial Planner at Lewis Financial Management. 919-872-7000. 919-872-7000.
0: One thing that you might want to look for, which to me is important, is what relevant education or credentials does the planner have in the planning field or the financial services industry? Education may be as important as experience or investment history. For example, is the individual certified? Has he gone through a two-year educational program to become a certified financial planner? I think that's very important. Another thing would be, how long has the planner been doing total financial planning? How long has the planner been working directly with clients in the comprehensive financial planning process?
1: Isn't it important also to to know what did the practitioner do before he or she became a financial planner? It appears that most financial planners come from fields related to financial services, right?
0: If they're real planners, then you definitely should find that out. What did the planner do before they became a financial planner?
1: What about asking to see a sample financial plan?
0: Now, this to me is crucial. If it's a financial planner, they're producing a plan. I do not accept the fact that we're going to get a canned plan where you fill in a little questionnaire and it's going to be sent off to uh, some service in New York and you're going to come back and get a computerized financial plan. That's not financial planning. You should see a sample financial plan and find out what it's going to look like and is it going to be produced by the planner, him or herself.
1: Okay. It's important also to find out what are the practitioner's areas of
0: expertise, correct? That's right, Lynn. I think that's also important because ideally you're looking for someone who has experience or expertise in investments, taxes, insurance, estate. You want to find that there are specific areas that meet what you're looking for.
1: The numbers to call during the week at the office are... Area code 919 That's 919-USA-7000. And if, after listening to the show, if there's some question that's been on your mind that you need an answer about, I'll be happy to do what I can to help you and just call the office.
0: If we're looking at a, at a checklist, I'd say that we've got, number one, education. Number two, how long. Number three, what the planner did before becoming a planner. Number four, ask to see a sample financial plan. Number five, what are the areas of expertise? Number six, verify that the planner has a close working relationship with accountants, attorneys, and other competent professionals. Financial planning practitioners are generalists and may also be specialists in certain areas, but you ought to check references of professionals that they're working with. That'd be number six.
1: And Doug, isn't it? Helpful also to find out what type of clientele the practitioner serves.
0: I think that's good number seven, Lynn, what type of clientele. It's not uncommon for some planners to work specifically with particular professional groups or income levels or age groups. I know in our practice, there are certain types of people that we do not work with.
1: And it's very important for people that are looking for planners to find out, will the practitioner with whom you're talking work directly with you, or will you be working with an associate handling the account, right?
0: That's an important question, Lynn. Find out, is he going to be doing the work directly for you or will he be giving your account to someone else? I've been asked that question many times through the years. How do I know that you'll be doing my planning or will he just be giving me to an assistant to someone?
1: Okay. And another question I think people should ask is, how will the practitioner keep you informed of new financial information, correct? Either through newsletters, seminars, telephone, letter, or personal meetings?
0: Well, you know, Lynn, this is the matter of what we call status reports. Right. Uh, I think herein is a very big lack of understanding of people. When they go to see a planner, they don't realize that the initial set of meetings is not as important to them as what's going to happen afterwards. So as to see the sample reports of what's going to happen after the planning has got started. How will the planner provide you with ongoing reports and how will the planner get paid for these ongoing reports?
1: And one of the practitioner's roles may be to suggest financial products to implement your plan. Will the planner provide generic or specific investment advice, right?
0: And who's going to do the research? Who's going to go ahead and actually do the analysis on the products that are recommended? And then I think a very crucial issue to ask is, does the practitioner have any vested interest in any of the products that he recommends? And also... People
1: need to find out how the financial planning practitioner is compensated and whether or not there is a charge for the plan or for periodic reviews as well as revisions,
0: right? That's right. This is the most important thing, Lynn. Financial planning practitioners are compensated in one of two ways, either fee only or fee commission. Now, some people say they are planners and they work on commission only arrangements, but to me, that's a basic sales approach. If you're doing something for free, And the goal is to sell some products. That's not real financial planning. But there are planners that work on a fee-only or a reduced fee arrangement. And you need to be very clear on how the fee structure works. Whether you are paying your planner on a fee-only arrangement, and then you'll take his or her advice and go to another broker or someone to do the investments, and the commissions will be paid to the other individual. Or whether the planner will be working on a fee-commission arrangement and how much he's going to get paid. So you you need to really be comfortable that the planner is being uh, open and honest with you about how he's being compensated and that he's being compensated properly. You don't want someone who is not being paid well for the services or you're not going to get any service.
1: Correct. And it's important too, Doug, as people are looking for planners, uh, it's one thing to to be checking out the practitioner that you're interested in working with but also to sit down and get that notebook out and start jotting questions down that are on your minds or concerns that you have regarding your own situation, correct?
0: You're right, Lynn. You need to meet with your planner ahead of time, bring a list of questions, get some references, client references, call clients that they're working with, see a sample financial plan, get comfortable that this is the person you work, and then go into it 100% realizing that this is a person that has a lot of influence over your financial future
1: if you'd like any other information, you can call our office and that's eight seven two seven thousand I'll be happy to send you some information What's new in the area of investment planning?
0: Well then I think uh, a couple of things are interesting. I think the big thing is to look at mutual funds and to realize in the way of investments and investment planning that people don't understand much about mutual funds Linda. I think one of the big questions people are confused about is, can a mutual fund go broke?
1: I think a lot of people wonder, or some people have wondered, what happens if my mutual fund goes broke?
0: I've heard that well, question. can it
1: go broke? <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, a mutual fund's assets can and will fluctuate in value, but the liabilities, that means what it owes plus the shareholder's equity, can never exceed its assets, so the mutual fund can't go broke, Linda. A mutual fund can't go broke.
1: Well, Doug, another question that uh, some have is, what happens if the fund sponsor goes bankrupt? Um, will I lose my money, uh, you know, when the bankrupt company is a private company and can't obtain the types of information that routinely would be available about publicly traded companies?
0: Well, then the financial difficulties of the fund's sponsor or advisor I have no relationship to the assets in your mutual fund, which is organized as a separate company. No creditor of an investment advisor or sponsor would have any recourse to any assets in the mutual fund to meet their obligations, so there really is no relationship. And I guess most important of all is under the Investment Company Act of 1940, mutual funds are subject to very strict requirements governing custody of their securities and other investments. Most funds use bank custodians, and the standard mutual fund bank custody agreement is far more elaborate and more specific than the typical bank custody agreement for other clients. So, Uh, there really is not an issue there.
1: Doug, what about fraud? Can the fund managers take a person's money?
0: Well, of course, dishonesty can occur in any business, but again, the Investment Company Act of 1940 provides a variety of very effective safeguards for investors. In order to protect against fraud, the 1940 Act subjects the advisor to many legal restrictions, especially regarding transactions between itself and the fund it advises and joint transactions, and quite frankly, Linda, I have never heard of any case in any mutual fund where there has been fraud.
1: Doug, and what happens if the broker-dealer is holding uh, some mutual fund shares in street name or shareholder name and the broker-dealer firm goes bankrupt? Is a person likely to lose their money?
0: Well, no one can guarantee the net asset value of a stock or a bond fund. However, your mutual fund shares are safe, that's for sure. Once again, the assets in the mutual fund belong to the mutual fund shareholder, not to the brokerage firm. So let's say that you've got your mutual fund shares held through any of the firms out there. The assets in that fund do not belong to the brokerage firm. They belong to you, the shareholder, even though they're held in street name. And even if your mutual fund shares are held in street name, if your broker-dealer is insured by SIPC, and these shares, including Money Market Mutual Fund shares, are protected just as any other individual securities.
1: Call the office in Raleigh at 919 That's 919-USA-7000.
0: Let's take a caller now.
3: Hey, good evening, guys. How hey. uh,
0: How are you, Mark? Nice. How can we help you this evening? What's your money matter?
3: Uh, well, actually, what I'm trying to see, I want to know if I'm ahead of the game or behind in terms of my retirement savings. All
0: right. <laughs> Tell me a little bit about yourself. How old are you? 48.: 48. 48. Mm-hmm. All right, you working? Uh, working right now, yes. What's your income? Uh, right now it's about 107? 107 thousand. Married or single? Married two kids. Married with two kids and your wife working? No, Okay. family life. income 107 thousand. How much have you accumulated thus far in non-retirement investments like mutual funds, CDs, uh, bonds, anything that's not retirement accounts?
3: So this, this is probably where I get slapped a little bit from you. Um, I have about 30000 in kind of an emergency fund, which is kind of a liquid asset, money market type mutual fund. Um, everything else I have is kind of retirement and or pension related.
0: All right. What do you have in your reti- so retirement? So you really have no investment portfolio at all outside of retirement? Correct. Okay. Uh, good news is you're only 48. Bad news is that you are behind many, many people. But let's find out what's over in retirement. Also, what's over there?
3: So I have um, in my self-directed IRA, I have a few mutual funds and also some stocks. I used to be in financial services, and so um, I have about 260.
0: 260 in, in your
3: in your IRA. In my self-directed IRA, in my 401k, I've got about 56. Um that I I contribute um nine percent each paycheck and uh my employer matches uh up to uh fifty percent, up to six percent of my salary.
0: So you got a three percent match and you're putting in nine? Correct. All right, and what kind of funds do you have in your IRA? Um, I actually have
3: um I have a couple of I well I actually have a I created my own mutual fund essentially. With some S and P five hundred different S and P five hundred stocks that I have, um, and
0: I have actually a couple of uh, REITs. Okay, are they traded or non traded REITs? They're traded. Traded REITs. Okay. Uh, and also, I
3: have two pen- I have two pensions. Uh, I don't know the actual cash value, but upon retirement, the, ca- the pensions that I have, where one would be the equivalent of essentially five hundred and fifty dollars a month, and then the other one would be about. a month from former employers upon retirement
2: age. This is Deborah Lewis, certified financial planner at Lewis Financial Management. Our number at the office is 919 872 7000. Call me at 919 872
0: 7000. Okay, well, personally, I think that you are setting yourself up for a very big disappointment because you're only 48. If you were to attempt to achieve financial independence before you're 59, then, of course, you would want to start drawing income from what you've accumulated. Well, right now, everything you've accumulated is in tax-deferred accounts, which means that uh, you would be forced to pay not only ordinary income and state tax too but you'd pay 10 you'd pay almost 45 to 50 percent of everything to come out to live on so you'd you'd say well wow why didn't I do it the other way and we have many clients that come to us this very way so let me suggest what you might do first of all you're over contributing to your 401k there's no reason that you should be contributing more than six percent. Because okay. because they're giving your boss is giving you or your employer is giving you three percent half of that that's free money, mm-hmm. but you have to remember what you are putting into a four hundred one k just like what's already over in your ira, that's not money that is tax forgiven, that's money that is waiting to be taxed. So let's say that a person at the time of retirement or financial independence. They've accumulated, let's say, a million dollars, and they've got five hundred in a retirement account and five hundred in a non-retirement account. If they need to draw out, let's say, uh, thirty thousand a year, if they draw the thirty thousand a year from their retirement account, they're going to pay probably double the tax that they would pay from the non-retirement. And that, because at once you are retired, then you look for the biggest. Portfolio that has the least tax as you withdraw from it,
3: and I. The thing is, I wouldn't. Uh, and just knowing myself, Doug, I can't see myself retiring early. I don't. I really don't. I it doesn't matter more.
0: when you retire. You're, you're missing my point. My point is, and I've had clients that have retired that have worked until they're seventy years old. The ones that come with the largest retirement portfolios regret it the most because they end up having to pay twice as much tax. They thought that they were accumulating, but they forgot they will be hit the most. I've had clients that have come to me with $2 million in retirement, and nothing in non-retirement, and I've had ones that have come with a million and a million, and it's always the same story. How can we go to the non-retirement and get income? Because then we don't have to go ahead to the the other one is going to hurt you the most. So my advice, take it or leave it, my advice is reduce and start immediately accumulating in an after-tax portfolio. Put at least 10%. Actually, you should start with a living expense analysis. That's what we do in our office. You're welcome to call me and schedule an appointment. I'll be
2: happy to meet with you in our office. This is Deborah Lewis. Call 919-872-7000 to set an appointment with me regarding your financial situation. Call me at 919-872-7000. We start
0: by analyzing your living expenses, and then from there, we break the expenses into recurring monthlies and non-recurring, and then the maximum that's left over afterwards goes into a non-retirement portfolio to start building that, and... Uh, and that's what you should be doing
1: you know Mark I I think it's great that you've accumulated and I agree with Doug on the one hand it's mostly in your retirement plans and it's also great that you have an emergency fund in case something should happen and you know if something happens to you and you're out of work for a few weeks because of an injury but I agree with Doug Um, it's better you know just in in principle you want to balance the scales because you're 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 heavily weighted in retirement plan monies and you know if something happens and and you have some great emergency and you have these assets but you can't touch them without a penalty right but if they're in a mutual fund in your own name they're liquid and you can just call your mutual fund company and say we need this money can you uh send us a check and And liquidate it
3: and the other challenge that I have is that I have not nearly, I got a teenager and I have a four-year-old that are not, I have not saved, begun saving nearly enough for them in terms of their college education.
1: Well, it's, it's, it's a crisis, but it's not. Uh, it's
0: all part of what financial planning you know, is. Every client that okay. comes to see us that has children goes to the same thing. Sometimes it's grandchildren, but it's all, you probably should meet with, someone like us, a fee-based financial planning firm that will address college education, estate planning, cash flow planning, uh, as well as investment planning, because uh, you need to look at your entire world.
2: You're listening to Money Matters with Doug, Linda, and Deborah Lewis. Call to make an appointment with Deborah Lewis, Certified Financial Planner of Lewis Financial Management. Call 919-872-7000 or visit our website. Doug and Linda dot com. Let
3: me ask you this. And I I understand, for example, uh, like if you have your if you have your um, your IRA or what have you at Fidelity, for example, Mm -hmm. and I understand that if you go because everybody gets the literature periodically, come and meet, do do an analysis, do a financial plan, all that kind of thing from the from the advisors that they have there. And I understand that they're commission driven and they're going to be focused on their Fidelity funds per se to try to drive you in that direction. Right. Is there any value added then in talking with an advisor at one of those places, or is it I
0: don't think basically? so. You should never meet with someone who is commission driven. A little longer, a little later in the show, we're going to be talking about a new alert from the SEC. You want to be talking to someone who is charging you as we do by the hour for non-investment driven advice for pure advice. Uh, advice is advice, and if you. You know, if you pay zero, you get your money's worth. Yeah, that's a good point. That's you, a good point.
1: And, and because, you know, you're probably the more financially savvy uh, person in your household. And your dear wife is there spending many hours taking care of the children. But she may have questions and you may have issues that you want to discuss about your whole world that doesn't only relate. To investments, right, Doug?
0: That's right. Because That's right. financial, financial planning, planning is much more is, than is just investments. Than that. Much but I more. Think the folks, but somebody
3: like myself, and I believe it, it's been so beneficial hearing you guys. I've been listening to your show now for over a year.
0: Oh, thank you. Is that I
3: wonder? I wonder if I'm not at the income level that I can afford, quite frankly, to go to a certified financial planner.
0: Well, I would disagree because in my little story about Mark McLaughlin—he only makes thirty thousand a year and he is qualified. So if he's qualified at 30,000 a year and you're making 107,000 a year, you should you're definitely everybody needs advice. We have had clients through the years. We've had little secretary a secretary who has nothing more than one little $10,000 CD, but she wants to know and she realizes that answers are out there. You need to pay for the answers, but answers are out there. And then that way you, you buy a few some hours of time. time and then, you know,
1: exactly, you have some direction. And w- and at this point, whatever the questions are that you and your wife have, go ahead and start jotting them down or put them on the computer. But if you'd like, you can just call us at the office and we'll be happy to get your information. We can send you an introductory packet and then, you know, we can schedule
0: an appointment.
3: Well, I think I, I think that's part. I guess I guess that's probably something because, quite frankly, I, I don't know what y'all
0: what you guys charge. But, right. Uh, we, we won't announce our fees important. on the air because there are too many people that shouldn't hear it until they call the office. But as soon as you call the office, we will be happy to go ahead. Of course, tell you our fees. Also, send you a form ADV which describes our fees. That's a full disclosure required by the Securities Exchange Commission. We are regulated directly by the SEC, and all of the different types of fee arrangements that we have, but I will tell you, we start with a simple hourly fee. Okay.
3: All right. Uh, Great. Well, I'll
0: definitely call you tomorrow morning. Then, What's that number
1: again? It's 919-872-7000. Okay?
0: And we're in Raleigh. Yeah. And visit our website also. You'll have an enjoyable time. If you haven't been there, take a look at DougandLinda.com. Thank you, guys.
3: All All right. right. Take care. Have a great week,
1: Mark. Doug, what is the uh, definition of financial planning?
0: Well, this has been a very contentious issue, Linda, on defining for the public, first, defining legally for state legislatures because there are bills before a number of legislatures constantly about how to protect the public from abuse and fraud and so forth and so on. It always boils down to two issues. Number one, the holding out provision. Who has the right to hold himself out as a financial planner? And number two, what is the definition of a financial planner and financial planning? So the IAFP... That's the International Association for Financial Planning, did finally decide on a definition. And it goes like this Financial planning is the process of providing advice and assistance to a client for the purpose of achieving the client's financial goals.
1: I think that's a wonderful definition. It
0: focuses on advice, advice and assistance. If you give advice, aren't you supposed to be licensed to give advice? Not licensed. You must register as a registered investment advisor with the Securities and Exchange Commission. Anyone who receives any fees for advice must register. And if he does not give you a copy of what's called the ADV form, that's the advisory form, which discloses his whole history, his past, his fee schedule, education, and education mm-hmm. and everything. If he does not give you one of those, then he is in violation of the law. Furthermore, if he is receiving fees, and has not filed, he's in violation of the law. But in any case, that's the definition they agreed on. Financial planning is the process of providing advice and assistance to a client for the purpose of achieving the client's financial goals. And there was some explanation that went along with it, Linda. The explanation had to do with the process. What is the financial planning process? And the process, they agreed, includes six basic steps. Step one was data gathering. And number two, goal setting, setting goals. Number three, identification of financial problems. Number four, preparation of written alternatives and recommendations. That's a written plan. Number five, implementation of the agreed-upon recommendations and implementation schedule and action plan. Right. And number six, revision and review of the plan. That's the process.
1: You know, um, when some people call in at the office and they want to come in and have an appointment with you, we've always suggested to them to sit down with their spouse or sit down with a legal pad and just write down what are some of the concerns, what are some of the questions that you have about your own situation, and discuss with your spouse. What are our goals, what are our objectives, and what are our needs now at this time?
0: Right. That's the goal part. And the data gathering, you know, when anyone comes in our office, you always ask them to send the five keys, right? right? Right. One of those five keys?
1: Well, the five keys would include a person's federal and state tax returns. Right. That's the first thing. Secondly, either a financial statement or a list of their assets and their liabilities, and that's all inclusive. That would include any income from rental, et cetera, et cetera. And then thirdly, projected income... And also what their withholdings or their uh, quarterly estimates would be for their taxes.
0: That's number four.
1: And then the last thing, number five, would be a list of their living expenses.
0: That's the most important, estimated living expenses.
1: Right.
2: If you need help, call me, Deborah Lewis, 919-872-7000. 919-872-7000.
0: They also went ahead and said that comprehensive financial planning will include the basic areas of financial planning, along with any other concerns or areas of concern to the client. Now, the basic areas are a financial statement analysis, investment planning, income tax planning, risk management, retirement planning, and estate planning. And other areas of concern might be cash management or educational funding, planning for college education, charitable planning, business planning, pre-mortem planning. You know, we've got a couple of clients who who are terminally ill, planning for death planning after death, divorce planning, each of these are other areas. And the financial planning process can be applied, they decided, to meet the client's needs on any of the following. It could be the full range of client's goals on a comprehensive basis. It could be a subset of the client's goals on a more limited basis. Or it could be a single client goal on a specialized basis. So that that was the conclusion of the final definition of the process and the definition of planning.
1: You know, Doug, when a person thinks about financial planning, it doesn't matter if they're only making 24000 or they're making 250000 or a million.
0: We've had them all, though. The
1: principles are still the same, and Inventors. I have spoken to hundreds of people, and, you know, each one of them has their own little scenario, but each one's need, you know, needs to be addressed, and there are some very basic financial planning principles that are used in each situation.
0: You're right, Linda. My office number is eight seven two seven thousand. If I can help you any more, give us a call during the week. We have Ray from Kerry on hold. Ray, this is Doug Lewis, Deborah Lewis, Linda Lewis. How can we help you this evening?
4: Hello, gentlemen and ladies. Got a question for you.
0: Fire away.
4: Very much appreciate your show. It's great. Thank um, you. Just real simple question for you. This is certainly less complicated, I think, than what you normally deal with. But to make a long story short, um, father passed away. Um, mom, of course, is still here, thank God, and she's got the house, but she wants to, you know, basically, since I've been the caregiver for years, um, and, you know, for lack of a, a better explanation, she, you know, the property she wants to leave to me. Okay. Um, and, you know, the house and everything basically in it. Wanted to find out, um, is there a better situation tax-wise to do that? In other words, instead of just having it in the will, that it is for me, um, is there something that that she should be doing, or me, uh, who is the power of attorney um, for her, um, that would help that situation when, unfortunately, the day comes where that occurs?
0: Right. Very good question. We get it a lot with our clients. Uh, Deborah, you want to start off?
2: Uh, Yes, there there are going to be two questions. Uh, The first is going to be, is it going to make a difference if you get it now or you inherit it? And Doug, that's usually where we begin the conversation.
0: Right. We have to get basis and we have to deal with the step up in basis rules. First of all, what did the house cost? The house cost
4: originally, they bought it uh, 96 here in Cary, North Carolina. And I think they paid about $153,000 for the house. It's all right. Probably and, worth, at least as far as I can tell right now, in this crazy environment, somewhere in the neighborhood of
2: about two fifty. All right. All right. Uh, so that's going to be what we call your basis. Right. No, the basis is 153000 Yes, sir. 153000 What they paid is going to be what you call your basis. All right.
0: Okay. So now we have to understand that if she were to give you the house today... Correct. which she could do by deeding it over to you, mm-hmm. then she gives you the value of the home, which is 250000 and she gives you the basis also of 153000 Okay. Now, if you later on, after she passes away, mm-hmm. if you later on sell it, then you will pay tax on $100,000 of capital
2: gains... Assuming that we were just going to use your appreciated value of what it's worth today, two hundred and fifty. Right. So right. that one hundred thousand. That so dollars is about twenty. Out. Yeah,
0: it's about twenty or twenty-five thousand dollars of taxes.
4: And, and I don't mean to interrupt you. It, it, the, the you know the situation would be for sure um, without getting into too much because I know we only got so much limited time here. Is that um, you know when she does pass away, um, I am in a financial position. I'm uh, you know partially disabled. Um, and so it would be a situation where I could not afford to keep this house, which I would love to do, but it would be an immediate
0: sale. Okay.
2: Okay. Words,
0: I'd have to. I'd have to get out. Right. Very good. All right. So now Deborah's going to tell you the All way right. to sell a tax-free. So
2: Ray, yeah. the best thing in your situation, it appears to be, just from the little bit we we know right now, sure. is that if you were to instead were to inherit it at yeah. her death,
0: instead of receiving, instead of it, as as receiving
2: it as a gift during her lifetime, right? You get an immediate step up in basis, meaning. At her death, mm-hmm. you would receive an asset that would be worth the fair market value or, or, you know, as of her date of death. Sure. So now you would have received an asset with a basis of 250000 $250, And a value of 250000 right. And a value of 250000 So when you needed to sell it, you know, a month later after everything's, you know, settled sure. and everything, right. you now would pay zero.
0: Really? Yes.
2: Taxes. Interesting. This is Deborah Lewis of Lewis Financial Management. Call us at 919-872-7000 to speak about your situation and to set up an appointment. 919-872-7000. If we know that the end result is whether it's just a not needed home or we need the assets home, if if there's definitely that situation, we want to inherit the asset. We want to get the step up in basis. So
4: really the only expenses that I should incur... Yes. Once, once this occurs, is obviously you know the usual stuff that occurs. But if I hire a, a real estate agent and he gets his or he or she gets the um, you know the usual six percent or whatever it is, um, you know, is, is there any other besides you know? Well, the only any,
2: other question I would have is, I mean, unless there's a mortgage on it, but yeah, you just sell it is. and keep the proceeds.
0: There is. Then you, how then much all is the how much is the mortgage on it now? Yeah, that's that's the the sad part
4: is that uh, you know I would say at this point the house like I said is is probably worth two fifty and the um the amount that's owed right now is probably about one hundred and
0: thirty. All right, so we take we, we 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 take these three points one at a time. Mm-hmm. First of all, at death, let's say God forbid she died this year. Right. All right, two hundred fifty 250000 mm-hmm. dollars is your is your home the fair market value. All right. Right. The basis, of course, has been stepped up. So the basis goes from $153,000 to 250000 So zero tax as far as capital gain to the IRS... There's nothing owed to the IRS. Now yeah. what about the mortgage company? Okay. Right. The they mortgage company That's right. They want their portion, which is oops, I lost my number. How That's much?
4: Okay, f- about 130 or something 130, like that. 130,000.
0: That's right. So you get so you would end up with $120,000. There'd be no other cost. There might be a little bit of real estate taxes that are owed on it if she hasn't paid the taxes right. on it. Uh and as you say the uh uh the commission to the real estate broker but there's no tax. Right.
2: Taking in those 3 points Doug, there's no way he would want to have it received during her lifetime. I oh, mean, no, the, no. with, you don't with want, the mortgage yeah. and the tax, you would have eliminated anything and you obviously
0: You want to step up in basis. Right. right. So the bottom line is is leave it just the way it is. Yes, sir. In the will, just that's that.
2: That's right. That way that way mom takes care of you after you've been taking care of her.
0: By yeah. the way, you can avoid probate if you haven't already done so by putting it in joint ownership with you and herself, but still it's in her name. Gotcha.
4: Very good. You guys are very helpful. I appreciate your time.
2: You're welcome. Thank you for calling tonight. Call me, Deborah Lewis, Certified Financial Planner at Lewis Financial Management. Call me at 919-872-7000. 919-872-7000. What's new in the world of cash flow planning?
0: Oh, cash flow planning. It's good to remember that financial planning is much more than investments. Right. There is tax planning. Retirement planning, cash flow planning, estate planning, insurance planning, true financial planners should be practicing all areas. And cash flow planning is definitely a crucial issue. What was the question?
2: Well, the question was in regard to Social Security and when is the right time for people be taking and what are some of the considerations that financial planners so while this was actually um, the reason I wanted to bring it up was based on two conversations I had with people this week it was summed up nicely in an article that said keeping your clients from grabbing the cookie and it said despite the fact that many Americans haven't saved enough for retirement the majority claim Social Security benefits at the first opportunity substantially reducing their monthly benefit for the rest of their lives you know Deborah a lot of
0: people feel that analyzing the social security story will solve the issue. Do I take it now and end up with, a, with, a, with, with, with more comfort? Or do I end up with more money if I delay and wait till I'm 66 or even wait till I'm 70 years old? Mm-hmm. The longer you delay, the bigger social security check you will get. That's exactly correct. But if you only analyze one piece of your world... Social security choice number one versus social security choice number two, then you totally ignore real life cash flow planning and real life cash flow planning would go like this. If indeed you don't need to live off of that check. okay, Yes, you should take it when you're 62. Really? Yes. If you don't need to live off it. okay, Take it and invest it. Because then you will be dollar cost averaging, so that by the time that you are seventy, let's say, All right. you will have accumulated m- more than if you had. And even though you'll get a smaller Social Security check at that time,
2: mm-hmm.
0: actually you'll get the same check that you started when you're sixty-two. The point is, if you're when you try to, to deal with the Social Security question, okay. you look. You need to take a look at your entire cash flow. That's true. You need to answer that question on the basis of how, what other income sources do I have? What is the cash flow that I've got coming from anything else from a side job, from an investment portfolio, from a pension, from anywhere else you add up all of the cash inflow dollars. And if you don't need them to live on the social security piece, then take it, then then take take it, it, then take it. That's exactly right. right. All right. if you do need to de- if you do need it to live on then you've got a problem that's got to be solved by looking at your entire world how do I meet my cash flow needs? can I delay and so forth and so on but the big mistake I see people making when they look at at, at uh, Social Security is they do what the article probably said they just grab it as soon as they can but what do they do they spend it
2: That's to right. gratification. If you hear something tonight that sounds like your situation, call us. Set up an appointment. We can help you. 919-872-7000. 919-872-7000. Well, Doug, uh, let's take Nancy's call.
0: Hi, Nancy. This is Doug Lewis, Certified Financial Planner. How can I help you? Hi.
5: Thank you for taking my call. All right. Um, I won't bore you with all the court details, but my husband and I kind of got started late um, in our financial planning um, just by just some... some um, some things that happened. But anyway, um, what I want to ask you is, we have two homes. We have one, a vacation com- home, and then just our primary residence. And I wonder, how smart is that to let real estate be part of your financial planning for the long term like well, we're thinking that you know, if we had to later in life, we could sell one of the homes, and we would have that money, and maybe it would appreciate through the years.
0: Boo, bad Does move. That,
5: that doesn't make sense.
0: Bad move. Okay. Um, let's let's get a little closer though into some numbers. For some people, it's fine, but my knee jerk reaction is boo, bad move. Okay. Uh, let's take a look at some numbers. How how old are you? I'm forty. Forty years old. How old's your husband? He's forty four. Husband's forty four, and wife is forty. I. Uh, any children at home? Yes. How many? Two teenagers, 13
5: and 16.
0: All right. Two teenagers. Income of the husband?
5: Uh, about 45.
0: 45. Income of the wife? About 35. 35. 70, 80,000 combined income. Investment portfolio, what does it look like on the non retirement investments?
5: It's pretty low. We have about 5,000 in stocks and bonds, and we only have 500 in savings.
0: Okay. So that basically, reason. okay, so basically no investment portfolio. What about on the retirement side?
5: Um I have a retirement at work and I think it's maybe like maybe 46 something like mm-hmm. that.
0: And husband's retirement plan? He has nothing. No retirement mm-hmm. plan. Okay. Um let's go over to the residence. How much is the residence worth?
5: Um each one is worth about 120.
0: 120,000.
5: One of them we just bought.
0: Okay. So and uh, what's the equity in the vacation home? It's
5: $20,000. right,
0: 20000 equity. So you had $20,000 to invest uh, somewhere, and you put it in the vacation home. Right. Okay. Well, uh, you're right um, when you began by telling me, you, you know, it's not a real pretty picture. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's really an accident waiting to happen, and it scares me looking at a situation like this. Uh, bottom line is you've got an $80,000 Income, you certainly can't afford to maintain two mortgages, and you shouldn't maintain two mortgages. And there's no reason to. Uh, real estate uh, certainly should not be part of your investment portfolio by any means. Uh, and basically, you have uh, uh, you should be focusing on accumulation as rapidly as possible under the means of what we call a pay yourself first plan. What are your living expenses, Nancy?
5: Uh, about what we make.
0: You're spending 80000 a year?
5: Yeah, because we have two homes. And the problem is... No, forget...
0: Okay. Now, what's the mortgage in the second home?
5: Um, it's about 1000 a month.
0: 1000 a month. So what you're telling me is that if you didn't have that vacation home, you could invest 1000 a month plus have 20000 as a starter kit. Right. Well, that's what you should do.
5: But yeah. the problem is we have a feeling that if we sold the home, we would lose our shirt. Tough. That's why I'm thinking... No. Nope. That we should hang on to it. Wrong. Okay.
0: Wrong move.
2: Call me, Deborah Lewis, Certified Financial Planner of Lewis Financial Management, 919 872
0: 919-872-7000. Wrong move. You see, you have a $120,000 uh, thing that you've got there, but you've got an $80,000... No, you've got a $100,000 debt. Right. Well... If all it means is when you say lose your shirt," you might lose your twenty thousand right, which yeah. you're not gonna lo- but but I don't like you sitting there with virtually nothing in savings, your husband having a zero retirement plan, you having barely nothing in your retirement plan, two teenagers at home, and uh you are saying that I could be investing at a thousand a month into mutual funds, but uh I'd rather have an i o u of hundred thousand dollars.
5: Yeah, well, we wouldn't rather have it. We just have a feeling that it might be hard to get rid of.
0: Well, I'd get rid of it anyway. Okay. I'd get I'd get out of it, and I would just the same thing as if you bought it, bought yourself a, a stock, and it was down twenty thousand, and you lost. Well, you lost and go on. Right. So but just you, cut you, our losses. Yeah, uh, okay. yeah. I, I definitely would try and get yourself into. You've got to be accumulating. Right. You see, you have. What you must reach is a point where you have an accumulated portfolio of investments equal the income from which is equal to your lifestyle. So, if you're spending, uh, let me see. I wonder what your expenses are without the taxes and without the the um the one mortgage. Let's say that maybe you're spending about sixty thousand a year. Uh-huh. Okay. Well, that means you need roughly, uh, say, seven hundred thousand in an investment portfolio. Okay. Because that could produce the 60000 a year income, which would give you the security that you're after. Okay. And the only way you're going to get it is, and the good thing is you're only 40 years old. Mm-hmm. You do have 20 years compounding in front of you. Of course, the, the risky thing is also that somebody could lose their job. Right. And so, you know, I, I my advice would be, you know, down and dirty. Get, put it up for sale, get rid of it immediately. Yeah. And uh, if you come out having lost your 20000 uh, okay, you lost your 20000 At least you can invest 1000 a month for the next 20 years. Right. Uh, and that would be a large, large number by the way.
5: Well, you know, just to kind of, I guess paint a better picture, our strategy was we thought, okay we'll buy this house. It'll be paid for in 15 years because we have a 15 year mortgage. And this will be our, this, we'll, we'll, we'll retire there. But you know what? It's going to be too much house for us and too much yard,
0: and it's like we want. Besides, what good does it do to retire and have a house paid for and have no food in the refrigerator right. or in the kitchen? I know you can't eat that house. Yeah, financial security isn't the home. Financial security is the uh, the the income stream that supports the lifestyle. So many people have that confusion. They think if they're going to have that big house with brick and mortar paid for, right? But that's not financial security. Right. Okay. Well, thank you. That's You're kind of sure what welcome. we've been
5: thinking, and you've confirmed that for
0: us. Good for you, Nancy. Thank you. Okay. And good if luck I, then. Nancy,
1: if I can send you any uh, information that we have, I'll be happy to do so. If you'll just call me at the office. Okay. And what's that number? And that number in Raleigh is eight seven two seven thousand. It's you. USA seven thousand. Thank you very much. All right. And take I'd like care. to hear
0: the day you get the house sold. You call me on the air and let me know you did it. All right. Thank <laughs> you. <laughs> thank you. Good Nancy. luck. Bye-bye. Thanks. That was a
2: great call. Another good thing to do is to bring up a real question. So, Doug, some of the advice out there says that you should invest as much as possible into your employer's retirement plan, you know, your 401k or your 403b at work. Do you think this is true? No.
0: No, it's not true. Any rule of thumb is not specific information about your individual specific situation. Usually, it's considering the lowest common variable about human behavior. Now, if you're the kind of person who could only accumulate retirement savings if it was withdrawn from your paycheck so that if you don't see it, you don't spend it, then that might be the one exception where the answer would be yes. First of all, if you don't have a spending problem, then there are lots of reasons why this so-called free advice about putting the most into your 401k is not good advice. When you set aside money in your employer's 401k, you're setting aside money that can only be invested in the investments that the employer has selected as options. There are thousands of other options that you're unable to access if all you do is invest in your 401k.
2: Second, you should own investments that are not only in your 401k because those can only be accessed when you retire. The day you retire, you can take them with you. And the day you turn 59 and a half, you can take money from them without incurring an early withdrawal penalty. When you own assets in retirement plans, the only way to get money from those retirement plans is to sell those investments inside the retirement plan.
0: Yeah, and third, the selling of those investments in a four hundred one k means that the distribution of that money to you will be taxed as ordinary income, just like your salary. This is the highest tax rate. Most people don't realize that
2: they don't. They For example, really don't.
0: if you have investments that you bought in your four hundred one k that total a hundred thousand dollars, and they've now grown to be a hundred and fifty thousand, if you take out a hundred thousand, most people think they don't pay tax because that was their hundred thousand investment. Or maybe they only pay tax on 50000 but no, the tax on the entire amount of that withdrawal is taxed and taxed at the highest income tax rate.
2: If you have investments outside retirement plans, then you can access them when you want and without paying ordinary income taxes. You only pay at the capital gains tax rate. Most importantly, you are able to invest in the thousands of other investments that are available. With our help at Lewis Financial Management, you can create a personal investment portfolio that will complement your 401k investments. This is the best way to be prepared for retirement and for unknown, unexpected events along the way. Call me, Deborah Lewis, or my father, Doug Lewis, both certified financial planners at Lewis Financial Management. Call us this week at 919-872-7000 to set up a time to have a face-to-face meeting. 919-872-7000. Well, as we finish out this evening's show, it might be that uh, we talk a little bit more about the savings versus investing for retirement conversation.
0: Yeah, a recent study found that 80% of respondents who don't feel confident about retirement say the number one reason is they haven't saved enough money. Hmm. However, saving for retirement requires more than just contributing to your retirement plan. Without good investment returns, it can be difficult to accumulate enough money for retirement.
2: Some who are concerned about market volatility may try to, quote-unquote, save their way to retirement without investing. But by investing with a long-term perspective, you can benefit from growth potential and compounded earnings, which is when the dividends on your investments produce additional earnings.
0: Yeah. Let's take an example. You can potentially contribute less and have more assets for retirement by investing rather than just saving in a bank account. If you invest $250 a month, your retirement withdrawals could be nearly twice as much as someone who saved 1000 a month. That's the real key, that, that investing
2: 250, $250 a month has more long-term benefit than saving $1,000.
0: Yeah, if you take the uh, 40-year period... okay. And you're saving $1,000 a month for 40 years, then at your retirement, you have enough to take 1600 a month for the next 25 years. Okay. But if you invest, not $1,000, 250 a month for the same 40 years, and you get an 8% return, then at retirement, 40 years later, instead of having 1600 a month, you have almost 3000 a month wow. for 25 years. The whole key is don't save, invest.
2: That's right. There's much more power when you understand the value of compounding. That compounding is uh, what all great thinkers know is the power behind starting young. When you have years, it takes less money to accumulate more. That's been
0: our joy, helping so many of our clients that began with us in the 80s and the 90s who are now, they are financially independent. They're what we call middle-class millionaires, and their children are now our clients on the same path because they have that power that their parents did of time, compounding return, and so forth. And with all of that, that's how it's so easy when you really see what it is and how to do it. For us, Money Matters is always available to you. And we want to remind you that your money matters because your financial future is at stake. So join us next Saturday and Sunday on 680 a.m. at 6 p.m. Have a wonderful week, everybody. This is The Lewises again reminding you your money matters because your financial
2: future is at stake. You've been listening to Money Matters with Doug and Linda Lewis. Money Matters provides you with a personal financial hotline on any subject where money really matters. For more information, you can call Doug and Linda in Raleigh at 872-7000. That's USA-7000. Listen again next Sunday at 6.05 for Money Matters with Doug and Linda Lewis on 680-WPTF.